Hey, everybody. I want to welcome you again to the Before You Quit podcast, where we want to bring courage and perspective when serving gets hard. And man, does it get hard sometimes. That is why we do what we do on these Before You Quit podcasts. My name is Mitch Schultz. I am your host and also the director of a ministry called Fruitful Vine Ministry. Well, today's a a special interview. I I love doing podcasts. I I believe every one of them is uh, encouraging to me, challenging, and I love how I can develop a a wide range of of different topics. But this one today is rather unique. I'm I'm interviewing a, uh, a friend by the name of Marcy Renee. Uh, talking about her unexpected involvement uh, in working at a safe house, and it comes um, in, this is in Spain, and it comes out of uh, her book that she wrote uh, called Our Journey to El Dorado. Uh, I read that book and was deeply moved by it, and so we decided to sit together and, and talk about that story and also talk about just the, the tragedy of trafficking humans and how the Great Commission addresses that and what our involvement should be as a church, what we need to know, what we need to understand. Uh, So I'm gonna go ahead and jump into this right now. And uh, you'll notice as you hear my voice that I am struggling a lot as I did that interview with my voice. And uh, so you're welcome to comment on that, laugh at it, whatever you want, I'm fine with it. So anyway, let's go ahead and jump into that interview with Marcy Renee now. Okay, well, this might not sound like your host, Mitch, but it is. I'm taking on my nighttime disc jockey, calm voice persona, and uh, I am talking to Marcy Renee. Good morning, Marcy. You know me. Do I sound like myself? <laughs> you sound a bit different, but I, I kind of like it. It can grow well, on. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were laughing and joking about it, that it's my my disc jockey, smooth, nice voice to calm your soul at night. But uh, but actually, I've got a cold, and um, my wife is also pretty sick at the doctor right now, so we might be getting a call during this interview. But um, Marcy, thanks for being part of this interview. Uh, this comes out of a book that you wrote and an amazing story. And we've got a lot of talk about that. But first of all, we'd like to get to know you a little bit. Uh, uh, so tell us about yourself, your family, uh, your ministry, your journey. Just kind of give us a, maybe a three to four minute summary of your life. Oh, boy. About a, that's about minutes. as open ended as it can get. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am a Midwest American. So born and raised in Missouri and really spent all my life in Missouri uh, until the age of 19 when I first went abroad. So uh, came from kind of a broken family. Parents were divorced when I was two and uh, actually went through several divorces as a as a child. So just a lot of broken. Your, par- your parents uh, yeah. divorced twice. Wow. Well, my, to, yeah. To- to each other, you mean, or well, different? Uh, my parents were divorced when I was two, and then my mother remarried, and then was divorced when I was nine. So just a lot of that's a lot wow. brokenness, yeah, and instability, kind of growing up. Um, but at the age of nine, I fell in love with France. So fourth grade class, I can still remember the high school students coming and just you know starting with just the basics of French. And I fell in love with France and I went home that day from school and I told my mom I was going to live in France. So it was like, I caught my dream that day and never let it go. And that was something I held on to. I think that was 
a little piece of joy and passion that I had uh, during some of those kind of tumultuous, broken, mm-hmm. dark years, I would say. And it's amazing. It's amazing if I can interject that with with that uh, those that fracture in your life that that's um, you had something to cling to. As you'll tell your story, the Lord ended up being the one clinging to you, but it came out of this, you know, single longing for something that that probably held your world together in a lot of ways, didn't it? Very much, very much so. And studied French and then went abroad when I was 19. And my mom always said, I never should have put you on that airplane because you never would yeah, have come back. Yeah. And, well, in, a sense, in a sense, you never did come back. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, met uh, met my husband, my French husband. Uh, we've been married 25 years now, and we have four boys. So I live in very much uh, <laughs> a house full of testosterone. Yeah, yeah. Even the dog is a male. <laughs> you've had to you've had to defend for yourself. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For yeah. Sure. But yeah, we've uh, lived abroad. I feel like our family we're just a family of nomads, global mm-hmm. nomads. Uh, and our kids as well, they've, you know, lived in various places. We lived probably for 15 years in France and then seven years in Morocco and now most recently in Spain, almost three years. And our kids as well have studied, you know, in Senegal and Germany and, and England. So I think, I think it's just in the blood. We're global mm-hmm. nomads. <laughs> well, your story of coming to faith is, is fascinating too. So share, share that with me. You talked about going to France, meeting your husband. Yeah. France is, is such a huge part of it. So uh, my husband and I met like the first week that I was in France that first year when I was 19 as a nanny. And then we actually had broken, broken up. We weren't, uh, we weren't in communication, but I went back to France a second time. So I was 21 and I share this part of my story because it's, it's quite significant. I went back on a Fulbright teaching fellowship. And for me, my studies, it was, it was my life. It was my world, like academic achievement. And this Fulbright was like the culmination of everything I'd worked for. And I found myself teaching English in a small high school in a very tiny village, a communist village in mm-hmm. the south of France. Mm. And I just was really having a hard time meeting people, making friends, was very, very lonely. And I remember just thinking, is this it? Like, is this everything I've worked for? And this is this is it? Like, this is what it's bringing me? And I can... Mm. Oh, I'll never forget the day I went uh, grocery shopping and just in front of the door of the grocery store, a man handed me a Bible and I took it. I took it. I don't know why, but I took it. I think God was obviously already working in my heart. And my mother had come to faith actually just before I went to France that second year. Mm-hmm. And so I'd heard her story and just really wanted nothing to do with it. I thought it was great for her, but wanted no part of that. But here I have this Bible and I just remember reading uh, this book. For me, it was a book and I started at the beginning because that's where you start reading books. Mm-hmm. And I just remember reading a story about a God who loved and pursued his people. For me, it was a mm-hmm. love story. Mm-hmm. And I was so I was so fascinated, like just enthralled by this God pursuit, like this chasing after people. And I remember coming across a verse where God I was called father. And that I think really struck a, a heart chord for me. And I just thought, wow, like maybe this God could be a father for me too. And so I began praying. I didn't even know how to pray much. I just remember 
you know, saying, God, if, if you're real, if, if, if what I'm reading is real, just reveal yourself to me. Like, yeah. who are you? I want to know you. There was this longing, like this little girl longing for this father to be real and true. And November 14th, 1994, I'll just never forget the day I woke up angry, full of rage. And I remember drawing an X on God that day. I just felt like, okay, there's Mm. been no answer. This is, you know, just a bunch of (laughs) whatever. And I went to school that day. I told him I was quitting. I was going back to the States. I was just miserable. And I Mm. went home that day to find a package on my doorstep from my mother with an audio cassette tape. I know this dates me. And I just happened to have an audio cassette player in my kitchen there in my little furnished studio. But I listened to that cassette of her testimony and the testimony of her Mm. dear friend who was an atheist. And I just remember just beginning to thank God and praise him. I didn't know what worship looked like. I didn't grow up in any type of, you know, church setting. I didn't know what worship was, but I was just thanking God for answering. I knew this was a part of the answer. Mm-hmm. And as I was there in my kitchen alone, I just remember my hands were raised to the ceiling of my kitchen and I felt a presence. Mitch, it's so hard for me to even describe mm-hmm. it in words the presence just come upon me and just fill me from, Mm. you know, the, my hands down to my feet Mm. and I could not stand. It was just a strong, powerful Mm. presence. And I just was on the ground and I was just weeping and weeping. And I got up and I ran to that Bible that I'd been reading for Mm. a couple of months. And when I opened it, it was like a veil had been removed and I can't explain it other than I knew that I wanted, I, I wanted God. I wanted this relationship with God. I'd been reading about Jesus. Like, how do I get this? I knew it was real. And I looked up, uh, just asked around, looked up and found a church and went there and just started asking questions, told him I wanted mm. to know Jesus and I didn't know how to do it. So yeah. wow. <laughs> we That's amazing. People- People like that would come through the church doors all the time, right? (laughs) Well, what's amazing is that, you know, typically France is not where someone goes to to find Christ. It's a it's a very unevangelized country. uh, I think the statistics are something like 0.5 percent are are Christians. Uh, And uh, so, again, it proves to us, again, that God in his providence does what he wants. You know, we we tend to have our methods, our assumptions our tools, our approaches, and God breaks those things down and does his own thing. Uh, and, and I know that, you know, a, a similar thing was happening in your husband-to-be's life, you know, in a, a, a Frenchman who, uh, you know, was given a Bible, I think, by his grandmother or something like that. Well, just, yeah, kind of that in a nutshell, yeah. Same time this has happened to me he's up in you know in, in paris so in the northern part of france his grandfather died mm-hmm. and he looked at the tomb and just thought there's got to be more to life mm-hmm. there's something after life so he actually went and bought a bible at a christian bookstore and started reading well, that's so again, what it was no communication wow. between us whatsoever and then maybe a month later i was heading back to the states i called him and asked if he could take me to the airport he gets in the car, and the first thing he said was, "Can I talk to you about God and the oh, Bible?" Amazing. And I he just, did not know this was already. No, he had no life. idea. I had no idea. That's amazing. So it was just, it just got sovereignty, like you said, yeah. like God pursuing people. He's yeah. really pursuing people. Sometimes we lose yeah. sight of that. Uh, so I'd love to ask this question of people. Uh, in fact, I've gotten into a habit of every time I interview someone, I ask them this question. 
what drives you? What are the most, what are you most passionate about? And then let's talk about how that led you to where, you know, to what we want to talk about today. Well, that's a big question, but I think that when I look back on my life, I think there's been a common kind of thread woven throughout my life story of going for the underdog. Like I've always, I've always had a heart, even before I, you know, came to faith, I've always had a heart for the outcasts, the, uh, the smelly ones, you know, I, I, I love to go and sit and have conversations with, with the homeless on the street. Mm -hmm. Um, Those that nobody really wants to go to. I've just always had a heart for, uh, for the poor, for the needy. And I think that, you know, when I look at our, you know, even our, our life um, in, in ministry, it's been with refugees, it's been with immigrants, those who are, who are really the outcasts of, of, of society that nobody wants to, you know, wants them to cross the border and come into their country. So um, I think that going to the broken uh, those that nobody wants to go to going to places that are dark and broken has really been a huge driver for me, um, taking the light of Jesus into dark places. And I, I've always kind of lived on kind of on the edge. I, mm-hmm. I like this. I've always been a risk taker. And I think that that's, that's part of how God is, you know, made me and wired me to, to want to go into these places that maybe other people mm-hmm. uh, I love that. Yeah. And and it it reminds us when you look at the apostles, even how God took a rugged man who had their dispositions, their personalities, uh, transformed them, you know, by the gospel. And there was, you know, regeneration, transformation, and that their personalities did not change. Uh, But God, in an amazing way, incorporated his purposes through their, through their personalities and temperaments. And, and just the way God, you know, took you out of brokenness and gave you a passion for certain things. And then as he transformed you, he didn't, you know, he, he refined those things and continues to refine them, but doesn't change us. Uh, he, he, he transforms us and uses us as his instruments. And I, I thought about that as you were sharing this, well, give us uh, so you wrote a book. Uh, the title of the book is, is what again? called Our Journey to El Dorado, Two Women, Immigrants, Two Worlds Collide, A True Story Mm -hmm. of Faith and Freedom from Human Trafficking. Okay, you're you're sitting in um, uh, an airplane reading your own book and someone says, hey, I I love that title. And (laughs) you you have maybe a few minutes to explain to them what the book is about and why that title, what would you say? Well, it's my journey alongside uh, the journey of a Moroccan woman named Habiba, the poor of the poorest in Morocco, a widow, one son, she can't even feed him. And she hears about an opportunity to go pick strawberries in the fields of Spain. And I'd sign up too, if I were in her shoes. And so very noble, very honorable. She wanted to provide for her family. She wanted to feed her family. So she gets on the boat uh, with a bunch of other women. I call them the strawberry girls. And they arrive into the fields of Spain. Um, no money, nothing. But the, in, you know, in, in exchange for their hard labor, they're given food and shelter. And shortly after that, she's lured uh, told that she'll have a better job, a nicer place to live, 
um, I'd sign up again too. I'd get off the mm. strawberry fields and go. And she finds herself dropped off at the door of a brothel and she didn't know it. Uh, but I always say when a woman walks in a brothel outside of a miracle from God, she will not, she will not get out once she crosses yeah. that threshold. Mm. And horrible, horrible living conditions, horrible uh, work situation. You can only imagine the horrors that she's experienced physically and that she's seen. And then one day walk two women. She calls them the Jesus people who dared to go where even police don't want to go because they're so afraid of the mafia of, of the sex trafficking ring. And they handed her a card and said, if you want out, call us. And so she did. And she was rescued, taken to a safe house on the other side of Spain. And that's where I met her. So we crossed paths. And once I walked through the door, I couldn't leave. And so this book is a story of our journey of just sitting and walking with her through her brokenness, through her trauma. But it's so much of what God was doing in my heart as well. As I'm sitting in that place of brokenness, God begins to break me. So it's a very raw journey of faith and freedom, her own, but also how God uses her in my life to begin to transform me. So it's our journey to El Dorado. So El Dorado is, it actually means the gilded one uh, in Spanish. And so there was this legend many, many years ago of a king who was covered in gold dust. And eventually the legend grew to where they believed that there was a land or a country that had streets paved of gold. And so this idea of, of immigrants crossing the border, whether it be, you know, from Latin America into the United States or from Africa into Europe, they truly have this, this idea or vision that they are going to a land of gold, a land where streets are paved of gold, a land of opportunity, and they're going to have wealth and, you know, a good life. And then oftentimes they find that their life on the other side of the border is, is much more difficult even yeah. than life back home. So that's Habiba's story. And um, she comes to faith. So I'll share a little bit more about that uh, in, in a bit, but she comes to faith. And just a month after she came to faith, she was diagnosed with metastasized cancer. So it's ravaging her body. So now we're walking that road, but this idea of our journey together to El Dorado, she thought she was coming to El Dorado. It was a mirage. It wasn't real. Mm -hmm. It wasn't true. Yet now in faith in Christ, she is on her way to El Dorado because there is this land with streets paved of gold, heaven, this eternal life in Jesus. Yeah. And she's on, she's on the journey. So it's a very raw journey. Yeah. It's of, amazing. Uh, yeah. Together. Yeah. Well, you do. I read the book, of course, and you, you do an amazing job weaving your stories uh, through hers and, and just the, the way you related in, in certain areas, the way uh, you connected with her and, and also just the openness you had and how this was challenging you. And we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a moment. Um, tell us about, you know, the whole, the whole uh, tragedy of sex trafficking and really everywhere, but, you know, in Spain, it's, it's, it seems particularly pronounced. And uh, so what, what's going on there? Yeah. And uh, how, how do people get away with it? And also how do these safe houses uh, come to exist 
And then maybe you could share a little bit about how you got involved. Okay. Yeah. Sex trafficking is a huge business. It's a business. It's a global business that's bringing in like $150 billion mm. a year. It's huge. Yeah. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere where there are people who want to make money and everywhere where there are people who are vulnerable and weak. And, you know, it's this, it's this power struggle between the, the strong and the weak, but it's a huge money-making business, sex sells. That's just mm -hmm. the bottom line. Um, they're saying now when they look at human trafficking, if we look at that, because it's slavery, um, they're saying that there are 47 million human trafficking victims worldwide. They're saying mm -hmm. there's never been more slaves in all of history than right now, human trafficking mm -hmm. slaves. Uh, here in Spain, uh, you know, I was just sharing that figure of $150 billion that human trafficking generates a year globally. Spain generates, this is scary, five to $10 million a day. Wow. Through human trafficking. Mm. They say that every 30 seconds, like if you were to just stop for 30 seconds, maybe mm -hmm. we can do that. Thirty seconds. They say mm. in Spain, every thirty seconds, there's another human trafficking victim. Mm. They're saying there are about forty-five thousand right now in Spain. Spain is when, in, as far as ranking, is the first in Europe. It has the highest number of human trafficking victims. It's the third in the world. So. What's happening with Spain is that uh, there's just this mafia. I think that's probably what happens around the world. Uh, but they use so many fear tactics that they make sure that, it, that those women are not going to escape, first of all. But if they dare try to, they will never tell the secrets of the trade because they have mm -hmm. seen such horrors. Many of them have seen death. They've seen torture. So uh, and, thre and threatened. And threatened yeah. Yeah. and not just them, but their, their families. families, Yeah, their families. And that's often what keeps the women silent. Uh, it keeps them there. You know, people will say, well, why don't they just run? Why don't they just go get the police? Um, I know here in Spain, I think around the world, like there are even uh, police and judges who are corrupt. I mean, they're oftentimes involved in this huge money-making business. So they don't feel safe anywhere, but they're so mm -hmm. afraid to run, not only for their own lives, but often for, for the lives yeah, of yeah. families. But human trafficking, if I can just say, um, they say about 90% of the victims are women and girls. They tend to be the most vulnerable. Um, oftentimes they are less educated, illiterate. So they're they're just a little bit more, more vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, but what what's important to know about human trafficking is there are three really three important key factors. There's always an action. So the perpetrator or the trafficker is, is trying to recruit uh, promising provision. There's, you know, there's some type of promise. So there's an action that takes place to recruit these, these victims. And then there is a means. 
So an action, a means, meaning that there's usually money involved or something of value. It might not be money, but it might be clothing or shelter that they promise in, in exchange for, you know, for the exploitation. And then there is a purpose. So for example, if, if the person is brought out for commercial sex, that's sexual trafficking or sex mm -hmm. trafficking. If the person is brought out for labor or other services, then that's classified as labor trafficking. So just to kind of distinguish that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. So. Well, it's a, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine such evil, uh, you know, the, the men willing to sell uh, women. And then what makes me even angrier are the ones willing to buy, to pay, you yeah. know, the consumer, and if, if it wasn't for the consumer, this this would shrivel, you know, it would die. Uh, but it does, you know, sin, sin has no no limits. Um, right. I was reading again in James the other day, you know, when sin is conceived, it gives birth to death. And, and Romans taught, you know, two talks about this progression or chapter one of this progression of evil, that there, there aren't boundaries, you know, you don't reach like this limit where, okay, this is as far as we go in our depravity. Right. And um, and this is one of those areas, I think, that just exposes human nature for what it is. And it, can we remind people of the gospel, you know, that, that everyone can be set free of this? We, we are all prone to sin and uh, we're all prone to do evil. And, and we do. And the only interception is Christ coming and and taking that on himself and dying in our place on the cross and giving us his righteousness and so when we hear stories of people coming to faith out of this tragedy, you know, whether it's the exploiter, the consumer or the victim, uh, Christ is desiring, able and longing to rescue not just the victims, but to rescue the oppressor, yes. you know, because they're, they're, tra they're trafficked themselves, you know, they're, they're caught up in a web of lies. And uh, I think we, when we pray, we need to remember, you know, our hearts for the victim um, but let our hearts also be with those who exploit them because they're, they're lost and deceived and evil. Yeah, so uh, true. And Mitch, I, I really want to just speak into that because you mentioned something about men who, you know, buy these women and it's such a stereotype. And I, I really want to, to speak into that and, and break that stereotype because um, as I sit in, and listen to these women's stories. Almost all of the oppressors, the direct oppressors of these victims are actually women. Mm -hmm. So we have this idea of a pimp, if we can just use that word, of a pimp being a man. But it's astounding uh, when we hear these stories, the truth and the reality is that a lot of these pimps are women. And that's part of the deception because women trusting women. And so it's, it's a part of them bringing them in, recruiting them, grooming them. And, but it's a, it's a, it's a stereotype. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to, to speak into that. Yeah. Um, and I, I was, I was really alerted. Uh, one, one of the podcasts I did was on pornography with Mark, a uh, guy by the name of Mark Dancy. Uh, you know, great, great interview, uh, very disturbing interview. But, you know, when 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 guys, you know, or gals look at pornography, a lot of times you're you're participating in the uh, in that oppression. You know, it's often underage girls. It's often 
done illegally. It's it's done by women or two women who don't have a choice. And uh, so I think we all need to consider how we participate in these things and, and you know, seek out righteousness in our own hearts as we, because it's easy to react to the horror and the evil out there. Uh, sometimes we need to look at our own hearts and see how we're prone to, uh, because our proneness to sin, we are also contributing to these things. Uh, so I think it's worth mentioning that. Um, yeah, it's amazing how it's so interrelated, you know, uh, sex trafficking and pornography so and um, and what it's doing to young kids. You know, it's it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um, <laughs> you know, we, I, I write questions and then when I reread them, I think I'm not quite sure what I meant by asking that. But, well, I did. Uh, I know that you asked another yeah. question was about um, how kind of these safe houses came to exist and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe yeah. let's talk more about how you were because you were connected to the safe house because there was a need for translation, right? Right. Yeah. When we arrived in Spain, honestly, Mitch, getting involved in, in this type of work was not at all on my radar. We were mm -hmm. just arriving. Yeah. So when when we came here um, working among immigrants and, and refugees, we you know were just starting. We were learning the language, just kind of getting our kids settled. And then out of the blue, just a few months after arriving here, I got a call from someone, I think just through the network, through our boys school and stuff, they'd heard that I spoke Arabic that I'd lived in Morocco before. And so they asked if I could come in for translation. And I just remember with fear and trembling thinking, Ooh, you know, I would heard, I'd heard enough, you know, little bits and pieces about human trafficking. And I just know my heart, you know, I shared a little bit about my passion and, and my drive. I just thought I'm going to break. I'm going to break. I know mm. if I go into those places, I I'm not going to be able to walk out. And I knew it was going to be heavy. It wasn't something that I, you know, was desiring to do. But I remember wrestling with God and I said, okay, I will go just once, you know. And I remember the drive into the city and I just said, God, if you want me to do this, if you want me to go into this, I really need a clear sign. I need it to be crystal clear. And so I was just going this one day, they said they just kept getting these Moroccan women and they couldn't speak a word of English or word of Spanish, <laughs> word of Spanish, not English. Um, and they're, so their story, you can imagine, like they're coming out of trauma, they're broken, their, their souls are shattered, shattered. I've never seen this type of brokenness, Mitch, in all of my mm. life. And so they've got this story and it's just stuck inside of them because they have no one who can speak their language. And one thing that I think is a, another huge passion for me is that everyone deserves to be heard. Mm -hmm. Everyone deserves to be seen and known yeah, and valued. Yeah. And her story is, is valuable. It's sacred and it deserves to be heard. Yeah. And I think you, you reflect on that a number of times in your book of how Jesus, uh, was drawn to the vulnerable and pursued the vulnerable and, and also how the vulnerable were so drawn to him, you know, yes. there's just, uh, so you know, true. our rescue ultimately is we're just, we fall in love with, with Christ and who he is. And you talked about him being a, a father figure to you. Um, that's, that's what happened with your friend. And, um, so, yeah, you, you, you talk also, uh, and I love how you do this in, in your book, how vulnerable you are. And, and just how you had to wrestle from the, and I'm sorry if I interrupted your train of thought, you can go back to it. And, 
maybe incorporate this question with it, but um, it, you're involved, you struggled uh, a lot with your level of involvement. It's like every time you were asked to, uh, to be involved in her life, you know, there was that wrestling that kind of, because this was doing a lot to you emotionally as well. Uh, So talk about that struggle that that you had internally. uh, Right. Well, let me, let me just kind of jump back real quick to just how God so confirmed I was supposed to do that. Cause I think that is, that is what I had to keep going back to. Like it was such a strong, clear calling for me to be in that place and walk alongside her, that that's what kept me going each time when I was mm-hmm, ready mm-hmm. when I didn't want to be there. But that first day I walked in the door and the first thing the director said to me was, do you know, you're an answer to prayer. And I said, no. And she said, our team has been praying for over two years that God would bring a Christian woman through the door who speaks Moroccan Arabic Mm. to work with these Moroccan women. And I thought, I remember saying, okay, God, is that a sign? But then I thought, no, I need more. And then I went and I sat next to this Moroccan woman. I knew she was the one they called me to, to, you know, to, to, to translate for that day. I sat next to her and I looked at her, her name was Habiba, which means the beloved of God. Mm-hmm. Just so happens to be the name, the Arabic name that my Moroccan friends gave me when I, when I lived there. But oh, I, I remember... Yeah. She was wearing cross earrings and a cross necklace. Mm-hmm. And in Morocco, there are very few believers. Um, if you're a believer, you're going to be, you know, underground. You are not going to let anyone know just out of fear of persecution or, you know, even, even mm-hmm. death. Um, so I asked her, I said, Habiba, tell me the story behind the crosses. And she told me this story that's unbelievable. She told me as a little girl in an isolated mountain village in, in the south of Morocco, she turned on the TV one day and she saw the man in white. Mm. Jesus. And it must have been the Jesus film. I don't know what she was watching, yeah. but she said she fell in love with that that day with the man in white. And she said she went and got all the little girls in her village and said, come and see Jesus, the man in white, come see him. And someone walked in the house, slammed off the TV and said to them, you will never Mm. talk about Jesus again. And so she never did. Wow. And then she's rescued by these two women who worked for this, you know, organization, a Christian organization, the Jesus people, as she calls them, rescued by them, taken into a Christian safe house. Because in Spain, over the past probably 10 years, um, the country has recognized a huge problem with human trafficking. And so they're really being intentional to go out. They're putting you know, funding into providing these safe places, these shelters for women to come into. Mm-hmm. And so actually the safe house where Habiba was and where I went to, it's a Christian safe house that comes under the umbrella of the Spanish government. They have an arm uh, for refugees and immigrants and uh, victims of human trafficking. So she said she was rescued by the Jesus people. She said they loved me. They cared for me. And she said, I, I, I want to know Jesus. But she had never talked about him or thought about him from that time when she was a little girl and this moment. So I just was able to share with her in Arabic, just the love of God, his mm-hmm. love and care for her. And so she came, she came to faith and right away. And I knew then that day that, okay, God, I think I heard you loud and clear. Yeah. I think I'm supposed to be here. So that's what kept me there. That clear answer and clear calling 
by God, because each day, you know, going back to your, your second question of just, you know, that wrestling, I've never seen such brokenness. And in a lot of our other, other work, um, there's been such joy. I've loved, you know, ministry where, um, it's, it's exciting and it's fun and I look forward to it each time. That's the kind of work that I, mm-hmm. I've been involved in in the past. And now I'm called into a world of brokenness and shattered souls beyond. Like there's a book in in the chapter in the book where I I say, is is healing possible this side of heaven? It's that type of Mm -hmm. shattered brokenness that I don't even know if they can experience healing. Like I know God can do that, but it's such, such brokenness. So every week when I go there, there is a dread. There is a, Oh God, I cannot do this. It's too heavy. It's too heavy to carry. And what happened for me was that I would sit with her or sit with these other women and and hear their stories. And I'd carry their stories out of the house with me. And I was just broken. I would just be weeping on the drive home, just weeping and wrestling. And the only thing I could do was to go home and write and just pour it out. I had to just almost mm-hmm. empty. I know this sounds, this sounds horrible, but it was almost like a vomiting of this trauma. Mm-hmm. I had to just get it out. And that's where then I just began writing. It was more therapeutic at first for me just to get it out And then little by little, I sensed God saying, I want you to be a voice for the silent ones. I want you to share Habiba's story. So I asked her permission and that's where the books. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the wrestling then came from, Hey, if I step into this, I'm stepping all the way in. This can't be a, a kind of a, uh, you know, ministry from the periphery or if your toes in the water. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mentioned to you, or I think in in the sheet I sent you that Jay Adams uh, uses the word total involvement. And, and a lot of us are reluctant to help people because we know that once we start, we're being, forgive me for putting it this way, kind of dragged into their story and their mess. Uh, but then we're reminded again, the theology of, of that kind of, you know, humility and, entering into someone's life is, is based on Christ and how he, you know, in humility became man, you know, and came into this world and, and fully embraced humanity uh, yeah. while never giving up his deity. And, um, and, and there's that, you know, we use the word incarnational ministry. Uh, we got to be careful with that because we, we can't duplicate, you know, Christ didn't do what he did as an example for us. He did, what he did for us because we could not do it. Um, and, but, but we still, we still follow as an example in the sense of, uh, you know, we're to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to love others, which has a very sacrificial component to it. And I mean, I struggle with that. If I, you know, start to connect with someone, uh, which I actually have been who, you know, a guy who's in real need in our community right now. And, and uh, it, it means being fully available, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and sometimes for pastors or any of us it, or, you know, people working overseas, it's that, you know, two o'clock in the morning phone call, you know, you're going to be inconvenienced and, and disrupted. So, so yeah, so God disrupted your life. Uh, very through much so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. very so. Well, what, what have you, um, just to get a little more introspective here, and then we can go back to her story. What, what did you learn about yourself from writing a book? When an author writes something, you know, I've read, written a num- number of books myself, and, 
you know, you're, you're really kind of exposing what's in your heart. And um, so what, what was that experience like for you? What did you learn about yourself? And, and yeah. um, well, the book, as you know, you've, you've read it, but there it's just, it's very raw. Um, and I think a lot of even the pain that I was, I was face to face with my own pain mm-hmm. that I think in a sense was resurrected through, mm. through her trauma and through her pain. So it was um, healing for you as well. It was, it was, it was healing. Interesting. For me. Yeah, it was healing for me. But I think not only the book, but maybe just walking alongside her, which I think in, in turn is, is, is the book. Um, I think I realized more than ever before that I cannot do this work alone. Mm. I think that, uh, you know, in, in all kinds of different ministries and work, we can do a lot of it on our own. Like we really mm-hmm. can't, we can do it mm-hmm. on our own strength, our own gifting, our own intelligence. But I mean, with this, I felt like I was literally stripped of all that in the sense where I had to say, God, I don't even have the strength to walk through the door and sit beside her without you. Like it was a complete, mm. complete dependence on him. Like I've never experienced in any, in any other work. Um, so I think that, that that was a, a big part of it. Just that, that dependence and a wrestling. I I've reached a point of obedience um, in a calling like never before, because this is not something I want to do. This is not a calling that I have chosen and desire. And every week I am saying, God, take this from me. Like even this Mm. morning before this interview, even this morning, I was at another safe house interviewing another Moroccan woman. And I sit there and I think, take this from me. I don't want it. Mm. Um, so it's an act of obedience each time, each time I go. And I sense every time that confirmation, this is exactly where I want you to be. Exactly. Yeah. where. I'm. So complete dependence and complete obedience. Like I've never known before. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Marcy. That's, that's encouraging and challenging to all of us to, uh, you know, we're, we're not always going to feel, you know, have that feel to help someone, but we're commanded to, you know, and uh, yeah, so maybe people listening, you know, look, look for ways to, to get involved in people that, that need help that, uh, I mean, you know, in your case, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say uh, that, that God, you know, Jesus directly connected you with Habiba, you know, that, that, that was your kind of your assignment by Christ to, and, and if it hadn't been for you, you know, who knows, uh, that's humble though, isn't it, to, to realize that. Um, so what, what has happened to her? You know, she's the, the main character in the story. Uh, how is she doing? What's the latest? Well, you know, I can remember. Or maybe, that- maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't say because we want people to read the book. <laughs> right, right. That's true. Well, I, I will say that I really struggled with ending the book because, I wanted there to be a happy ending. I kept waiting for a happy ending. That's how books are supposed to end, right? Like on this hopeful note. And I can remember um, just struggling with that because, you know, like I shared about a month after she comes to faith, she's diagnosed with, with not just breast cancer, 
but it's metastasized everywhere. Uh, It's a terminal, you know, terminal diagnosis. And I just remember the devastation for me thinking, God, how, how, how could, you know, she's come out of all this trauma. She comes to faith. She was so excited. She has this hope. And then for both of us, like so excited. And then boom, with this, with this diagnosis. And so this struggle and thinking, when, when is the story going to end? And I've been praying for healing. I, I, I believe, you know, that God can do miracles, that he is a, a miracle healer, that he could do that if he chose to do that in Habiba's life. He hasn't done that so far. But I remember as I was trying to get near the end of the book, I just thought, is that miracle going to come or is something going to come? And then I had that revelation of, of El Dorado. And I'll never forget um, as I wrestled with, is healing possible this side of heaven? I thought about this whole idea of El Dorado. She was chasing El Dorado. That's what brought her. That's what took her on the boat from Morocco to Spain. She'd been chasing El Dorado and then she found Jesus. So she's on her way to El Dorado. So that became kind of the ending of the book Mm -hmm. for me. She is, she is on her way and she is going to be fully restored, fully healed, fully, fully redeemed when she gets to that. I think that's a good way to, to answer that question of what's happened. And, and, you know, the story is still being told, I think is what we're, what we're hinting at there. Um, You know, and and what I like in your book too, is that you, you portray her. And I mean, it's not make it sound like this was a, a fiction. It's not, it's a real story, but she, she was very, vulnerable she had a lot of ups and downs she had times where she got angry and 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 was angry at those who were there to care for her you know she didn't like some of the things that were being expected of her and and so that that i think that the way you portrayed or presented that vulnerability in her was was very good and and that's Uh, the trauma too i mean there's a lot of when when there's been this much of like repetitive trauma yeah, uh, it doesn't go away. A lot away. of mental yeah. illness, a lot yeah. of schizophrenia, a lot of disassociation. So there's yeah. just so much of that wrapped up in it. And coming to Christ doesn't always take that away. No, it, no, I can remember. It gives hope. It gives hope. It does give hope. But I can remember saying, you know, are you able to sit and just kind of, um, you know, do like a Bible study with her? Are you able to kind of get into the word like that? And I said, I cannot describe the, the, the brokenness and the emotional instability of her. I said, if, if I'm able to just, you know, give her a, 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 a song, worship song in Arabic, or maybe be able to pray with her or share a verse with her, that is a huge win, yeah. you know, because yeah. yeah, it's, it's such a long journey because of the trauma that yeah. trauma and brokenness. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit what you feel the church here in America needs to understand about, uh, you know, this, this tragedy, uh, those that are there to, to do the rescuing. Yeah. I think that, uh, in, in the U S when we were, when we were there, this, our family was there this summer and fall, and we were sharing a lot. Uh, I was speaking, sharing Habiba's story. And, um, I think what I noticed most of all was just this lack of awareness that human trafficking is not just a global, you know, a, a disease. I want to say global, a disease mm-hmm. on the other side of the world. It is a global disease. Yeah. It is 
everywhere and it is at our doorstep. I can remember um, this last summer, we went to visit my, my mom in Missouri and the day after we arrived, she puts on the dining room table, a copy of the Kansas city star and front page, a huge human trafficking ring that had been broken up in several, you know, several small towns in the area. And I just remember even myself, like I, that's kind of my world. I'm kind of in that. I was shocked. I just remember saying, no, no, it can't be here. It Mm. can't, it can't be on our doorstep. And there were like 30 kids rescued. I don't know how many adults, just a huge human trafficking ring. And then as I started doing research, um, you know, we were going to be going to Pennsylvania. I was going to be sharing Habiba's story. And as I did some research, you know, telling the, the, the statistics, and it's shocking that in 2020, uh, Pennsylvania ranked fourth in the nation for number of human trafficking uh, cases. I mean, it's huge. It's everywhere. And I, as we were sharing and I was telling her story and sharing these statistics, people are just like, no, you know, their mouths drop. They're just like, no way this can't be here. Mm. So I think that's the first thing of just an awareness. We've got to stop. We've got to start talking about it. We can't close our eyes. We can't plug our ears. We can't Mm -hmm. pretend this doesn't exist. It's right at our doorstep. If you go to any of the, you know, rest stops in the United States, you have on the bathroom stalls, you're going to see these signs that say, you know, these are the signs of human trafficking. If you see any of this, call the human trafficking hotline. Mm-hmm. They're really trying to bring a, bring awareness. And yeah, it's amazing. In the U.S. and the churches, we've got to start talking about mm-hmm. it. We're afraid to talk about it. You know, I've got um, uh, a children's book. It's called Mommy, What's a Safe House? Um, because, you know, our my family's gotten involved in this as well. But uh, my youngest son, who was seven at the time, He'd met Habiba, you know, on, on the telephone and, and he'd heard me talk a lot about her. But one day he just said, mommy, what's a safe house? And I remember looking at my child and thinking, okay, do I just skirt around this? Do I mm-hmm. ignore his question? Do I tell him that he's too young to, you know, I'll tell him in 10 years or, and I thought, no, we've got to start talking even to our kids about this in a kid friendly age appropriate way, but all of our kids, and we think it's just girls, but our boys too. They are potential victims and targets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so as I presented this idea as an educational resource, like this book for parents to start talking to kids, parents are afraid. We're, and so we think that by talking about it, we're, we're going to be hurting our children. And I believe strongly that by avoiding the issue, whether it be with kids or whether it be just, you know, beginning the conversation and talking about this openly, I think we're actually hurting our kids. We're hurting our teens because human trafficking is everywhere. It's in the rural areas. It's in the farming communities. It's not just in the big cities. So we've got to start talking about, we've got to start with awareness. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. And, and I wanted to ask you how this impacted your family and you talked about how your family got involved, uh, which, uh, you know, how, how did that come about? And, and, and how did it impact your family? Yeah, well, you know, our, our kids, I think, have, have always grown up just seeing mm-hmm. our work. We always, you know, we've always brought people in off the streets. We've always, mm-hmm. you know, kind of had that, I think, that focus of going to the needy and the poor. Um, so, and we've always tried to include our kids, you know, in whatever work we do, mm-hmm. let them pull along and be a part of it. 
But I can remember, you know, when my seven-year-old asked this question, mommy, what's a safe house? And so I just explained as I could, you know, if I took, I remember he had a, had a water bottle. And so I took the price tag off the water bottle and I stuck it on his back and I began to explain, you know, how some people Mm. think they they can buy a human being just like they can a water bottle off the the shelf of a grocery store. So I kind of talked to him and, and explained through these different illustrations, but I remember saying, um, you know, Habiba would like to invite you to her birthday party. And I remember my son feeling scared. He said, I don't know if I want to go. And he started asking Mm. all kinds of questions. Like, what does the safe house look like? What, what do the people look like? What are, what are they like? What do they eat? You know, just these questions, because we have this idea of there are these, I don't know, animals or monsters. We don't know. It's this scary kind of mysterious unknown. And so I encourage him to go to that birthday party and he walks in and sees that, you know, these women are just like mommy, uh, the kids that are there because there are kids in the safe house where I work. They're just like him. And so he was able to be a part of that and it changed him and transformed him. He walked Mm. out of the safe house that day and he said, mommy, when can I go back? I want to go. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. So I, I pray somehow that as, as we are, you know, just our hearts and our, our passion for this is we're modeling that before our kids that, that they too are going to, you know, have a heart to go mm-hmm. towards ones. Um, I think another way this is, is very honest and, and transparent, but one way that this work has kind of affected my family or affected me, but it's kind of maybe been a part of the family is that as I've heard all these stories about uh, sex trafficking and these women that are abused by men. Um, it, you know, I live in a house full of men. My husband and uh, we have four boys. Two, you know, three are are grown and um, one one younger one. But I had to really wrestle before the Lord of even just my perception of men. At times, mm-hmm. I felt even you know a a disgust or an anger of just this injustice. Um, towards women. And so I really had to wrestle uh, with that, even in my home and family and and make sure that, Mm. you know, before the Lord, he was healing me um, so that I could, that I could be healthy in my, in my family unit. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe in a sense, that's a a metaphor for how the larger family needs to see this and to understand its involvement and that, that corporately the church, you know, is, supporting people like you, but offering hope uh, to those within their community and, and looking for the neglected and, and the deprived and, you know, seeking for ways to bring the gospel to, to that. That's been one of the things I've been wrestling with just in my own, you know, connection to the community that I'm at, uh, that I live in, because there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of need here. And we, we just, we're always in a rush, you know, and, one of the things that I've started doing a couple of years ago is I'll pick someone up who's walking and it's obviously that obvious that they're not exercising. They don't have transportation. And it's amazing the little opportunities you have, but sometimes it, you know, they want, they want to ask more from you than you initially offered just a ride. And, you know, sometimes it's take to a hotel, pay for a couple nights. And I think there's ways the Lord can, can use us like this. Um, well, Marcy, this has been a just super interview and I appreciate your candor and, um, and appreciate your book and that, uh, you know, you wrote the story and we will promote, I think my voice is about out. So (laughs) Mitch, the midnight uh, disc jockey will sign off and say good night. 
to everybody out there in sleepy land. <laughs> but thanks. Thank you so much, Marcy. You did a great thank job. Thank you. Thank you just this. for an opportunity to raise awareness. And Absolutely. I just want to say that everyone can make a difference. I know it feels far away and foreign and you wonder like, what can, <clears throat> what can I do? What can I do to help or to make a difference? But just listening to this and being aware mm-hmm. uh, is a huge first step of yeah. making you know, making a difference. So yeah, just listen absolutely. to the story as a part of that. So yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. You're welcome, Marcy. Thank you very much. Thanks. Mitch. Bye-bye now. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Before You Quit podcast. I want to remind you that you can go to our website, which is beforeyouquit.us www.beforeyouquit.us and you'll see up to 87, 88 podcasts and blogs and uh, check that out. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to email me, if you have any questions or comments about this podcast or others, you can email me at mitch at beforeyouquit.us. So until next time, stay encouraged, be courageous because serving Jesus is worth all of that hard stuff that comes with it. And remember what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 through 58. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So until next time, stay in